Ken, I know you've been watching some documentaries recently on Netflix. What's caught your attention? So there's one called Civil, directed by Nadia Hallgren, that follows the civil rights attorney Ben Crump for a year of his law practice. And it's really fascinating to see what happens behind the scenes. There's obviously been a huge amount of attention placed on the criminal cases in the George Floyd murder and in other high profile cases. But often we don't really know what's happening with the civil litigation. And Ben Crump has been there not only for the George Floyd case, but he's represented the families of Breonna Taylor and Trayvon Martin and many other families. And it's just a fascinating look at the relationship between the legal team and the families and how they try to hold these municipalities accountable for these police killings. And you can find Civil now on Netflix. Hi, I'm Ken Jacobson. And I'm Mike Merrill, and welcome to Top Docs. Today, we spoke with Daniel Rohr, director of Navalny, and here's what he had to say when we asked him to describe his film. The leader of the Russian opposition survives an assassination attempt and goes on a quest with a team of journalists to try and uncover the insidious plot to murder him. Navalny had its world premiere at the 2022 Sundance Film Festival, where it won the Audience Award and the Festival Favorite Award. Since then, it's screened at film festivals throughout the United States and the world. It's screened on CNN, and it's currently available on HBO and HBO Max. Daniel's previous film, Once Were Brothers, Robbie Robertson and the Band, was the opening night film of the 2019 Toronto International Film Festival. Daniel, who himself hails from Toronto, has also directed numerous shorts, including Finding Fukue, and Sourtoe, the story of the sorry cannibal. So I'd seen this film at Sundance, but I really didn't know the story of how he came to make the film. And I was actually surprised to hear that Daniel's entree to the film was actually through Christo Rezov, who is the Bellingcat investigator based in Vienna, who kind of cracked this whole case wide open and it was through Christo that Daniel met Alexei Navalny, and together, both he and Christo earned the trust and support of Navalny and his team to make a documentary. It's interesting that you mentioned trust and support, because the theme that came up right away as we were speaking to Daniel was the struggle in some ways in the film between him and Navalny for control of the film. Because Navalny, if he's nothing else, is a master... I would say manipulator, user of social media, of YouTube, and of various other platforms. And you can really feel it from almost the first frame that he and Daniel are really in a bit of a tug of war over who's going to direct this film. Yeah, I mean, the opening scene is one where Navalny is blanching at the idea of answering out answering Daniel's first question and suggests, and suggests, hey, may, don't you want to make a thriller instead? Isn't that the kind of movie we should be making instead of a film about what if I die? I'm not sure I've ever seen a film subject who didn't just want to redirect a question or give an answer to a different question, but actually suggest the kind of movie and the genre that he wants to see the filmmaker make a film in. 
Daniel was a lot of fun, I thought. He's obviously someone who thinks a lot about his film, how it's structured, what it means, the impact it will have. I'm really interested to see what he's going to be doing next, because I think that he's looking for subject matter that will have impact in the world. If you like this conversation, please do follow us wherever you get your podcast. And also follow us on Twitter at Top Docs Pod. All one word, Top Docs Pod. And now our conversation with Daniel Rohr about his film, Navalny. Daniel Rohr, welcome to Top Docs. Ken, thanks so much for having me. It's great to have you. I'm a big fan of Navalny, and I'm really excited to talk to you about it in depth today. In your opening shot, Alexei Navalny, he's seated directly in front of one of your cameras. You ask him a question that I think probably is on a lot of our minds in the audience, which is if he's killed in that tragic situation, what message would he want to leave behind to the Russian people? And Navalny balks at the question. He urges you to make a different kind of movie. He suggests that you make a thriller instead of this boring upon the cause of my death type of movie, as he describes it. And then what I would describe as thriller movie music, it's very good music, I don't mean to demean it. This music kicks in and we see this beautiful aerial shot of a snow-covered village in Germany. And it feels like a shot right out of James Bond or a Chris Nolan thriller. So my question is, did you take your cue from Navalny or had you always intended to make a political thriller? I love that summary of the opening of the movie. And I just have to anecdotally let you know that I remember it was like within 48 hours that we were in the edit room, we were cutting the film in London. One of the editors, Maya Hawk, who is a visionary, and she found the opening. And we put that sequence together with the overhead snowy landscape drone shot. And then probably the next day, I went to see the last James Bond movie, the latest one, and like cut to from black, we have the same shot, the same drone shot over the snow. I thought it was funny and it played into the homage. But your initial question is, were we taking our cues from Alexei? And what I would say is that it was not lost on us that we were making a film about a politician. And more than that, a politician whose extraordinary genius, perhaps, and greatest strength is his ability to command the media, whether it be social media, Facebook, even TikTok and YouTube. That's Navalny's greatest strength. We understood, I understood, as we were making the film and shooting the film, that we were an extension of that. Alexei Navalny was weaponizing us in a way to tell his story. And it was very important that we sort of were aware of that as we were making the movie. And I think that conflict of who's directing who is a sort of documentary fabric that we wanted to weave into the film. And so that theme runs through the movie, but certainly by situating the film through Alexei's request, make it a thriller is our way to ask the question, who's directing, who's in charge here? And it's a device that we return to throughout the film. And the last scene in the film, which is designed to mirror the opening scene in the film, it concludes slightly differently because once again, he balks at me, but I give him the final direction, which he follows. And I think that's our way of acknowledging and understanding the complexity of the dynamic when you're making a film about a politician as skilled as Navalny is, having to maintain the independence and the 
struggle of the filmmaker understanding that the film subject is trying to use the filmmaker while the filmmaker is trying to extract a narrative, a story out of the film subject. And it's a very high-minded cinema studies discussion, but it was one that was certainly on our minds as we were crafting the film. Another kind of twist in that dynamic is that you show footage that was shot of Alexei talking to his chief investigator of his foundation, Maria, who's a character in the movie as well. And they don't know that the camera's still rolling, it seems. And they're talking to each other about you, about the interview, about the questions that you're asking. And she's just checking in with him about how's it going. It's this kind of behind the scenes moment that we get. But I wondered if you could talk about your decision to shoot that footage in the first place and why you wanted to include it in the film. Again, it harkens back to the discussion of who's in charge here, who's directing who. Navalny is, as a politician, someone who's always on, who's very charismatic, but also very guarded and presenting a certain view of himself to the world and a certain view of himself to our cameras. When we found that what we call our hot mic moment, which was purely by accident. It was very late in the editorial process. And I took the arduous task of combing through every single moment of interview to see if there are any hot mic moments like that that were interesting that we might have missed. And so I found it. I had no idea what they were talking about, but it seemed like an intensive exchange. We sent it to a translator. And when we realized that they were actually talking about the interview. They were talking about me and the circumstances scenario. And more than that, Maria, one of the subjects in that scene says, we can control him. I can regulate what he'll do with this. I understood its power immediately. And for the first time, perhaps in the movie, we see Navalny totally unguarded, caught on hot mic. I didn't discuss with Alexei the idea of not including material from after we yelled cut. But I don't typically yell cut. I typically just say, okay, let's take a breather. Let's take five. The cameras were rolling. These are people who are savvy enough to know that they're all mic'd up. They're sitting in front of a, a boom. The DP knows to keep rolling for everything. And we want to include it in the movie because we see Navalny, perhaps for the only time, really vulnerable. And he's questioning how he's doing in this sort of humorous way. He's, you know, how's my English? I'm insecure about my English. And she says, your English is fine, but your eyes, they look a little sad. And he says, okay, I'll try and have kinder eyes, something like this. And that's why it was important for us to put it into the film. It reiterated this theme or this idea that we had in our heads of who's directing who and who's in charge. And by including that, I think we firmly established the directorial voice and the power of the filmmaking team. You know, it opens up another line of inquiry as well. A reporter from Der Spiegel, which is a German news outlet, suggests that Navalny is not just a political figure, but half journalist, maybe at least half journalist, right? We don't actually see him politicking that much. You really don't ask him what he would do differently as president until maybe the last third of the film. Isn't he something else? Isn't he really a very adept user of media who's challenging Russia's corruption? More than anything, I would say that Navalny's greatest ability besides his sort of charisma and humor is his ability to leverage those assets combined with the digital interface of contemporary media to spread his message far and wide. Nobody in the Kremlin would think of the power and utility of YouTube or of TikTok or of, of Twitter, but Navalny is a politician, a contemporary dissident of the YouTube TikTok 
age. And it's really fascinating how this information warfare played out in real time. We have a regime who controls the airwaves, who controls television, newspaper, and radio. But the internet in Russia, for a long time, it's changing now, but certainly when Navalny was free, was operating as sort of a free-thinking Wild West where dissident ideas and alternative thought could reach people who were interested. And that's where Navalny thrived. And it wasn't lost on us that this was his greatest skill. I think he would balk at the suggestion that he's a journalist. He might say something like, you know, I'm only doing this kind of work because there's no one else doing it. It shouldn't be a politician's job to do all these corruption investigations. And that in and of itself is political. His number one political aim is to do away with this regime and the corruption that has rotted every facet of Russian society. And I think that his YouTube videos and his social media presence are to try and further that goal. Yeah, I'll tell you why he's my hero is because he shows his 19-year-old daughter how to use TikTok. I mean, he's incredibly savvy about these tools. He is. And what I thought was interesting in the time I spent with Navalny is that this type of digital media was something that he was genuinely interested in. He was genuinely interested to learn how these things worked, the power of these tools. And he was shameless. He didn't care how cringy it might have looked to make a TikTok dancing video or something like this. I think that his position was if he can make some TikTok that other people would find embarrassing and it reaches an extra million people who otherwise would not be engaged with his content, for him, this is a tremendous victory. We just brought up his daughter and you really feature his family prominently in this film, more so than I might have expected. Can you talk about why they were so important for the film? I think first and foremost, Navalny derives a lot of his strength his courage from his family. This is a family who fully understands the risks that their husband and father is enduring, but they are lockstep with Alexei on this mission to bring down this regime and install a democratic tradition in their country. I think the reason why it was so important to showcase Yulia and Zahar and Dasha, his wife and children, was so audiences could understand just what was at stake for this guy. This is someone who was sacrificing everything. It's one thing if you don't have a family to go up against this regime, but when you put yourself in the line of fire and you're willing to subject yourself to jail time, to possible assassination, the stakes are so much greater when you have your wife and your children to consider. And to me, it was a study in bravery and courage to feature the family in the film. And it provides insight as to where Navalny's courage comes from. It sort of reverberates within the family. Everybody is dogmatically lockstep with this guy's mission. I was shocked that no one second-guessed his decision to go back to Russia. Everybody understood how important it was and supported him fully. And they continue to through the tragic and upsetting developments that have befallen him since we stopped shooting the film. Yeah. And I can't help, but when I see this clearly tight knit and loving family, I can't help but think about the other guy. I know we're not supposed to talk about other people's domestic arrangements, but frankly, Vladimir Putin's Family life is very strange, and it's loaded, from what we can tell, with probably secret children. And he's sort of Moscow's answer to Herschel Walker, I think. I think that's a smart read. And the other reason why I think the inclusion of Navalny's family was so prescient is because Navalny really casts himself as a new type of Russian politician. 
my understanding of Soviet and now Russian politics, which mind you is limited, but one thing that I was made to understand as we were making the film is that the asset of the family, the political asset of the family is not regarded or utilized in the Russian political context the same way it is in the United States or where I'm from in Canada. You know, a president's family matters. There's a role for the first lady. The president's children are well known to a certain extent and sometimes even become politicians themselves. But in Russia, the role of the first lady, of the spouse of the president has never been something that has been significant or important. And I think how Navalny genuinely feels about his family and genuinely incorporates his family into his politics just signifies another change to the Russian political ecosystem. He is an average guy who casts himself in this extraordinary role, who uses his charisma and contemporary media to try and galvanize a nation. And his family is a really important part of that. I think that's why we were invited into his inner circle. I didn't expect that his family would be part of the movie, but they genuinely were like, this is a project that Alexei wants to do. We'll be part of it. When we started shooting, Yulia, Alexei's wife, was particularly dubious of our intentions and annoyed to have us around. I think she's come around, and I've noticed that whenever we're at screenings together, she always sits and watches the movie every time, whereas the rest of the team might go have a drink in the bar or go get a bite to eat while the film's playing. Yulia always watches it. And to me, that's quite powerful, a signifier of a film that she appreciates, and that's very meaningful. It seems like a no-brainer for somebody to make a film about Alexei Navalny, but you're the one who did it. Looking at your body of work, this is quite a departure from your last documentary, which was a portrait of Robbie Robertson and the band. Why did you want to make this film, and how did you go about doing it in those first days, weeks after you decided, this is what I want to be working on? Well, you know, the development of how I transitioned from my last film to this one, I, it's tough to describe. It was not a natural process. It's not as if I woke up one day and I said, I'm going to go make a film about the leader of the Russian opposition. It was the opposite. In October of 2020, I was in a place of desperation. I was in a place of tremendous anxiety, crashing towards a depressive episode. I did not have a film to make. This pandemic was raging. I was emotionally and filmically and cinematically exhausted. And I was starting to have these dark thoughts of, I have to get a real job. I have to find a real career because the success of the last film didn't deliver what I was expecting it to. I didn't get job offers. I didn't have an easier time getting another film made. Compounded with the pandemic, I was really struggling. And in October of 2020, in what I consider to be a Hail Mary pass of my filmmaking career, I had the opportunity to go to Vienna, Austria, to meet with this guy, Christo Grozev, this investigative journalist who worked for this outlet called Bellingcat. It was just a fluke that this guy happened to be the individual whose meat and potatoes is investigating Russian state crimes, specifically Russian state poisonings. And so when he told me he had a lead into the Navalny case, I understood immediately what that could mean and what it could be. And I asked him, who's making that movie? Well, he was able to reach out to Navalny and by proximity to Christo, we were able to go and meet with Alexei. And then it became a question of trying to convince him why a documentary film was valuable. We have to understand that Navalny's social media reaches millions and millions, tens of millions of people. He has YouTube videos that have hundreds of millions of views. 
So what then could I offer him? It wasn't a platform. It wasn't an audience. But what I pitched him on was a vehicle to keep his name in the global consciousness. What I explained to him the first time we met was the major difference in my mind between a YouTube video and a documentary film. First, a YouTube video is something that goes online, it gets 100 million views in a week, and then it is sometimes forgotten or it isn't engaged with as much. And it's immediate. But what I explained to him about a documentary is that it is on a time delay. It's like a time bomb. If you wait a year, imagine a future where you're in prison, you go back, you're locked up, you need some sort of vehicle to keep your name in the global consciousness. If we do this right, if this thing works, if the stars align and becomes the film I am envisioning, this could be a very powerful tool to keep your name in the world's attention, to keep you relevant, and maybe even to keep you safe. And I think he understood the value of that proposition. And although he didn't quite know what it meant to have a documentary made, and he didn't quite feel comfortable having cameras follow him around, he was game from the get-go. The question of trust is difficult. Navalny has his chief investigator, the woman who is responsible for doing all the investigations. Her name is Maria Pevchik. She's featured in the film. And together, they have this sort of good cop, bad cop routine. Navalny is very jovial and likable, and Maria is very critical and discerning. And that's the role she has to play. And so while Navalny was very quick to invite us in and embrace what we were doing, Maria's was not. She was very skeptical. And I would say that if there was a moment when things pivoted, when we, if you can call it trust, when the trust was granted, it was after we filmed one scene in December of 2020, when Navalny decided to call up the men on his kill team before they were outed in this extraordinary investigative report, he wanted to call these men up and confront them. These are the guys who tried to murder him with a Soviet-era nerve agent. He wanted to prank them. He wanted to speak to them and get them on the phone. And the extraordinary result of that morning's filming session, I think, bonded us in a way where we were in it together. And he understood the value of what we were doing. And when he saw our footage, he understood the qualitative difference between cinema and a YouTube video. So we are going to get to that scene in a little bit later because it's a crucial one, probably the pivotal one in the whole movie. But before we do that, I wanted to ask one more question about you in that the story of a charismatic opposition leader taking on an entrenched strongman, it's not unique. I mean, there was the film president last year in a different context, a different country, somewhat of a similar scenario. Your film is about contemporary Russian politics. As a Canadian yourself, an outsider, how did you ensure that you were accurately capturing the, quote, Russianness of this story and your main character? I would just add that for me, just as a viewer, I know a bit about Russia. I've been there a couple of times. There were many moments where I'm like, that's so Russian. So I think you succeeded, but I'm just wondering what your process was for doing that. And I know you don't speak Russian, so that's another challenge. I really appreciate that thought and those remarks. And I wish I could tell you that I was such a student of Russia and Russian people and Russian history that I was able to put the camera in certain places and capture certain things. But I'm not. 
I was a total outsider. And I think that's one of the reasons why I was attracted to Navalny and why I, I got the job was that I was Canadian. But what I had was a deep curiosity. I'm a quick study. And I think that some of the things in the film that we see as so Russian, those are things that I might not have understood to be so Russian as we were shooting it. But the characters in and of themselves were so Russian. And there was certainly a cultural disconnect between the subjects and myself as we were shooting. And that was quite profound. I can be very extroverted. I have a phrase on set, I always ask how morale is. How's everybody doing? How's morale? I point to the DP, Nikki, how's morale? Marcus, the sound guy, how's morale? And I noticed that the Russians were almost offended when I would ask them how they were doing. I'd ask Maria, I'd say, Maria, how are you? How's morale? And she'd say, why the fuck are you asking me that? Well, you don't give a shit, what do you care? And that to me became so Russian. There is this sort of like pessimistic, almost bleakness in the worldview that's forged in hundreds of years of war and poverty and all these terrible things. I think it's the same catalyst for where Russian literature comes from, which in my opinion is the greatest literature in the world. All this to say, we were just pointing the camera and filming. I wasn't aware of what was Russian and what wasn't. I just tried my best to capture everything. And so the Russianness of the movie, I think, is a reflection of the Russianness of our subjects. And it speaks to the access we had and their willingness to let us in so fully and completely. Another kind of moment that really struck me also as a fan of Russian literature is the moment when there's a character in the film who has totally spilled the beans, as it were, on the plot. It's explained everything's happened to them over the phone. And their response is to worry about him. <laughs> their response is, uh-oh, we put this guy in a really bad spot. We've got to release this. But it's very likely this will cause great trouble for this person, maybe even get them killed. It seems like a really profound moment. This is someone who tried to kill Navalny. He's worried about this guy's own fate. I remember that day. And, and I remember the speculation of what happened to the individual you're speaking about. And I think everybody around the table understood that it was bleak and it was dark and it was insidious. When you are the catalyst for such a profound failure of security and you inadvertently leak some of the most sensitive state secrets in Putin's Russia, that doesn't end well. The man that we're speaking about has disappeared for all intents and purposes. He no longer exists. Members of our team think that he was killed, which is simultaneously brutal and upsetting, but also we have to have perspective. This was the guy whose job it was to murder people because they had different political opinions. And he worked for the FSB. And I, the way I contextualize it is that he made his bed. Now he has to lie in it. And it's probably six feet underground, some permafrost in Siberia, which is simultaneously upsetting, but also this is what happens when you operate in those worlds, I think. It's very dangerous. Along that line, there's an, what I'm told is called an evidence board, pictures of people and hierarchies and string tied that you might have seen in a thriller movie or Homeland or something. One of the things you do is some of the people on the board appear very clearly. You can see their faces. Others you blur. And I couldn't imagine what the criteria was that you used to determine who to show and who not to show on that board. Yeah, that's a very legal easy question. That had to do less with my personal judgment and the corporate lawyers at HBO and CNN, who I'm sure it was challenging for them to determine who we could show and who we couldn't, but that was a decision they made. I was never quite sure of their calculus. 
The men who are obscured, their faces are published elsewhere on the internet. Obviously, I was disappointed. I wanted everyone's face to be shown. I wanted everybody to be depicted. I think there's enough evidence to tie all of the guys on the board to this crime and a series of crimes, but that wasn't my decision to make. That came from the top brass. The board itself seems to serve a forensic, but also kind of a dramatic purpose as well, right? It's there partly to be shown, partly to dramatize what's going on for people. Yeah, I really think the Navalny team understood that it's one thing to have this investigation, but they understood the power of having sort of an image and a symbol and something that could visually describe the work they were doing. And I think that was the point of the suspect board, was that they could give Navalny a background, literally a background, as he was doing press and interviews on Spanish television, and they could use this as a visual to put with their investigation. And for our purposes, of course, it was incredibly dramatic and seemed to leap from the pages of a James Bond novel or something like this. But for them, they understood the value of this as an image. Ken, you want to talk about Christo, the second most famous Bulgarian Christo? Who's the first? Oh, the Christo, famous Christo. artist. Christo, oh, Christo, Christo, who, who, Christo, Christo, Christo. Raps things. Of course, the rapper. Yeah, yeah. rapper. <laughs> the yes. rapper Christo, Christo the rapper. <laughs> All right. So, Daniel, you mentioned that your entree to this story was meeting with Christo in Vienna, and that was ostensibly about a different topic, a different film. And then he just talks to you about what he's working on, and it leads to discussion about the Navalny poisoning, and you were off and running. Just a point of clarification, at that point, had he tweeted to Navalny, I think I know who poisoned you? At that point, he had not. The first conversation we had about the Navalny case was, let's say, at 9 a.m. Central European time in Vienna. And later that afternoon, Christo would have reached out to Alexei. And then seven days later, Christo, myself, and Odessa Ray, one of the film's producers, drove across Germany to meet with Alexei and Maria Pevcek. That's interesting because to me, it makes this almost as much Christo's journey as yours in making this film and in, in telling the story and getting the facts out. Can you tell us a bit about his organization for folks who still are not that familiar with Bellingcat? Who are they? What do they do? And how have they really changed the game in terms of data journalism? So Christo Grozev is a Bulgarian investigative journalist. He is the lead Russian investigator for this online news outlet called Bellingcat. Bellingcat's whole thing is that they don't do journalism in the traditional sense. Whereas a reporter for a normal newspaper might go and have sources in City Hall or talk to people on the street, Bellingcat only uses data, both open source data and closed source data. And what that means is the digital footprints that follow every single human being around. Christo specifically uses closed data. So in Russia, a country where corruption informs every aspect of society, it's possible and widespread to purchase information, personal information from data brokers off the dark web. Personal information can be doctor's records, can be flight manifests, can be cell phone records, can be credit card bills even. And what Christo does is he's able to purchase this type of information and from a flight manifest or a cell phone uh, all log, he can determine the movements of 
almost any individual in the Russian Federation. If you pair that with, let's say, information from the passport office or things like this, he's able to piece together the movements of the members of the kill team dispatched from Moscow to go murder Navalny. It's literally leveraging Russian corruption against itself to try and solve these crimes. Bellingcat's focus and reach is not just Russia. They have investigated the US government, the Saudis, of course, the Russians and other areas. But Christo's focus is on the Russian file. And that's really his beat. And certainly since the war has started in Ukraine, Bellingcat has been a key player in documenting war crimes, tracking the movements of Russian soldiers, and trying to destabilize the Russian military however they can through their intrepid journalism. At this point, it seems like a perfect marriage between Christo and Alexei, but there was a certain amount of skepticism there, especially on Maria's part. As you mentioned, she's his bad cop, his gatekeeper. But eventually, Christo becomes a key member of the team. Do you think that this case would have been cracked without Christo's digital sleuthing? I believe that without Christo, this would have drifted into obscurity, into the annals of conspiracy. And it's only because of Christo's work, his brilliance, that the Russian people were able to see how the government operates, how there is a unit of agents responsible for murdering people, essentially. It's one thing to have the call records and the flight manifests. It's another thing to get the killers on the phone and have them tell you in their own words, thinking they're speaking to a friendly individual, the entire plot. And I think that phone call was the most groundbreaking aspect of the operation. Let's talk more about the events of that day that lead into and culminate in the prank phone call all of which I think ultimately leave us with the information of that Navalny is an extraordinary and brilliant man, not just Navalny, but his family and his small team. The first thing they do after Christo shows them the evidence is they present the evidence to key mainstream media outlets who hold their reports until an agreed upon moment when they're all going to release this information and these news stories simultaneously. Navalny and his team have essentially activated the mainstream media to do what they do well, which is their own reporting. And so they've magnified the effect of the information that they have. The part two of this, though, is this extraordinary decision to call various members of the assassination team, starting with the military guys, and then going to the scientists. And it's fascinating to watch the evolution of this process. First, it's just a straight prank. Hey, do you know who I am? Is what Alexi says, and they immediately hang up. But then they decide, we're going to talk to the scientist, and maybe we can actually get him to open up and spill the beans. And that's exactly what happens. You're there, you're filming, the conversations are all in Russian. Obviously, your goal is I'm just going to keep the camera running because I don't want to miss anything. What were the visual cues, the body language, the sense in the room that you got that lets you know, oh boy, something extraordinary is happening here? It's amazing, first and foremost, how intuitive it is to film when you don't understand the language. There were a couple of situations, admittedly, where I thought that I was filming something quite compelling, only to find out later that you know someone was ordering lunch. That happens as well. But more often than not, you can pretty much just feel where to put the camera and where the camera should be. 
And on that particular morning, we were exhausted. I had been up late the night before, transferring the footage from the day before shoot. And I had no expectations that we would capture anything meaningful. We thought that these prank calls might be funny and an interesting set piece for the movie, but we didn't think it would be meaningful in any way. We woke up and we were set up and we were ready to roll. We were filming for about two hours before anything really meaningful happened. Most of these guys, as we see in the film, just hung up the phone when Alexei called them. This is often to the ire of the DP. I shoot everything. Like I'm like, let's, I'll sift through it all. I'll watch every single frame back, but I shoot everything. And on this particular day, it paid off. We were persistent, we kept filming, Navalny was persistent. And then on the sixth or seventh phone call, inevitably, Konstantin Kudratsev, a member of the kill team who was responsible for cleaning up the crime scene, a chemical weapons expert whose job was to go in afterwards and detoxify the nerve agent from the hotel where Navalny was likely poisoned, and also the hospital room in Omsk, where Navalny was treated for two days before he was airlifted to Berlin. Navalny got that guy on the phone. And I remember out of the corner of my eye, I watched the very steely and emotionless Maria Pevchik, Navalny's number two. I watched her jaw unhinge and hit the floor. Something happened that was very severe and shocking. And I just felt this adrenaline course through my spine. And I sat up in my chair and I, I surveyed the room and I saw Christo's face and I saw Navalny very serious. He had a task at hand, which was just to continue on with this ruse. It's as if he was an actor in a performance. He had to continue to extract information from this guy. But what was happening was clearly very significant. And so I just looked through the viewfinder. I was on one of the cameras. Our DP, Nikki Waddle, was on the other. And I thought to myself, just keep shooting. We had enough battery. We had enough memory on the hard drives. Just keep shooting. Hold her steady and make sure we get every single frame. And the scene, as it plays now, has that jaw-dropping quality, I think. I'm still shocked. I was so nervous that it's subtitles for 12 minutes straight. It's a lot of reading. It's a lot of information. And you can hear a pin drop every time you're in an auditorium watching that. And to me, it's just extraordinary. It was extraordinary to be in the room and it was extraordinary to experience it in real life. What's interesting too, though, is that it's not just drama for these folks. They are thinking every moment about how can we use this strategically to our greatest advantage? So they decide, for instance, okay, we've got this phone call now. When are we going to release it? Well, Putin's giving his annual New Year's press conference. We'll do it right after that because, boom, that's going to have the greatest impact. And that's what they do. It seems like literally everything, and this doesn't ever happen in life, but in this case, it seems like it does. Everything went according to plan. On December 14th, 2020, all the investigative reports are published. A week later, the prank phone call is released and it creates a sensation. And all of this stuff is amazing to us in the Western world, but it doesn't mean a damn thing if it doesn't have impact in Russia. So my question is, we do see the Russian propagandists at this point kicking into high gear. So this is a sign that, yes, this is making a difference in Russia. My understanding 
of the phone call dropping on Navalny's YouTube channel was that it, it dropped like a bomb. I think it was 35 million people watched that video within a week, which was the second most viewed video that Navalny had ever done at that time. I think that the response on the Russian Twitter sphere was absolute shock and mockery. It was this understanding that the great strategic genius, Vladimir Putin, is actually some moron who couldn't even wash Navalny's underwear properly. The reason why it was so infuriating for the Kremlin was because Putin looked so foolish. He was being called Vlad the Poisoner of Underpants. What the video really did for a lot of Russians, I think, was pull back the curtain and say, you're great Red Army, you're great spies who were revered and feared throughout the 20th century are fucking idiots who can't even get this right. And I think the fact that people were laughing at Putin enraged him and contributed to the clampdown that we're seeing now. And I would say that if there's any correlation to the video and Russian politics today, it's the simple fact that the regime was very quick to dismantle Navalny's organization, to exile his people from the country. And that is a direct result of a number of things, one of them being this call with Kudratsev and Navalny's successful ability to weaponize that call and embarrass Vladimir Putin. Putin had egg on his face and the one-two combo of Navalny returning home and then dropping another investigation into Putin's illicit wealth and his billion-dollar palace on the Black Sea was like a left-right combo that gave Putin a black eye. Putin had to respond to both of these videos. And that was really embarrassing for the Kremlin. And they just said, let's put this guy away. He's finished. Alexei and Yulia's return to Russia is harrowing. It's extraordinary. It's incredibly courageous. And it's something they said they were going to do from the very beginning. For you, this presented a lot of challenges. How did you get the footage you needed to get? And what was it like for you to be with Navalny in those last moments before he and Yulia left for the airport? That was a very challenging day because we had no sense of what would happen. We didn't know what would transpire or unfold. The weight in the room as Navalny was preparing to fly back was viscous and heavy. It felt like as if someone had passed away, like I was sitting Shiva. I knew that everybody was going to be on edge. I also knew that I had to film with Navalny that day. He said that we could come and film with him that morning for 20 minutes. It was the most stressed out I'd ever seen or experienced him. And I just didn't leave. I was the one filming that day. I was with him for about an hour, door to door, like an hour and five minutes. That's the full run of the clip. I never stopped filming. It's just one long clip of Navalny in the hotel room. And then they walk downstairs and then he leaves. It was very challenging because I knew that I would not see this guy. I didn't know if it would be for, it could have been, I'd never seen him ever again. That was a real possibility. And so it was very intense. We had two extraordinarily brave DPs who were on the plane with Navalny. One guy was called Nikita Pavlov. The other guy was called Evgeny Revo. Those guys were really brave because that was a scary assignment. They didn't know what would happen when the plane landed. And my direction to both of them was, if it's a four-hour trip door-to-door, -door, I want you to bring me four hours of footage. Shoot 
everything. I wanted to make sure we picked up the sounds of a pilot making an announcement that we might not use the visual of, but maybe we'd use the sound for. And those guys never stopped shooting. And when I saw the footage, I understood that between the footage on the ground with Alexei's team, the footage in the airplane with Navalny and Yulia, the footage at the airport with protesters being hauled away, we had the ability to craft a really extraordinary, dramatic scene. And I would agree with you. It's an extraordinary scene. And the way you cross cut between all those elements is truly riveting. And it does give us a sense of what was happening in real time in all these different places. Everything is coming together. And as usual, who's Mr. Cool? It's Alexei, the guy at the center of all this. It's also interesting, you know, when they get off the plane, he gives his final news conference, and then they go to passport control, and then the guys in the military uniforms show up, and the one guy gives him the salute, which is so bizarre. But then right after that, they kiss, and we're brought right back into the family, to them as a couple. And I almost felt like a genre shift happens right here. You pull out the sound, you bring in the music, and it felt like a love story. Well, I think at its heart, the film is a love story. It's a guy who loves his family and his wife. It's a love story between Yulia and Alexei, but it's also the love story between Alexei and his country and how much he yearns for his country to be better. He has this beautiful Russia of the future in mind. It's aspirational and it's ambitious, but it's really what motivates Alexei. And at the end of the day, something that was very important to all of us is that we wanted the film to end on an optimistic note. There are a lot of reasons to be bleak and to be depressed and to be sad about this story. Let's be clear, it doesn't have a happy ending. But Navalny, as an individual, is someone who is so committed and oriented towards optimism. One of his sort of political catchphrases is, Russia will be happy. And that's something that he really aspires to. He wants to live in a country that is happy. And because of that, it was really important for us to show the bleakness of the reality, to show the cold and desolate prison environment, the guys who are literally the chain gang breaking coal with shovels, and then show Navalny skinny and withered after six months in prison, having survived a hunger strike. Very bleak, very depressing, only to be concluded with Navalny seated as we have come to know him in the film, healthy and vibrant in the interview setup, the same place we met him to bookend the story. And he delivers his final message, which is one of hope and optimism. It's simple, but it's effective and it's very true. Bad guys are only able to be bad. Evil is only able to proliferate if good people do nothing. And he, in Russian, almost commands his audience, don't be inactive. And the reason why I felt like that ending was so important is that it's a hopeful message that speaks not just to a weary Russian people who have been further brutalized by this regime. The Russian opposition has been brutalized by the regime. I want to make it very clear that sympathies need to lie with the Ukrainian people and their struggle, whilst at the same time acknowledging that there are many decent, good Russians who are suffering greatly because of this egregious war. And I want to be very clear that there are a lot of good Russians who don't want this war, who think that Putin is a very bad guy, who are taking to the streets. That's what we've been seeing over the last few days since we've recorded this podcast. And I think Navalny is speaking to those people who have a dream for a brighter future, but he's also speaking to people around the world who have or are in the thrones of a nationalistic authoritarian 
impulse. We see that in Brazil. We see that across Europe. We see that in Hungary. We see that in Turkey. We see that in the United States. And Navalny is speaking to people around the world. Don't be inactive. And I think that message, in the context of this egregious genocidal war that Russia is perpetrating in Ukraine, is particularly valuable and prescient. Yeah, it is even the customs guy in the airport says to Yulia, thank you, and to your husband, which is a little act of bravery, obviously, right there as a paid employee of the Russian government. Huge. And I think that that is emblematic of the struggle that so many Russians face. This regime will ruin your life if you support Navalny. You will lose your job. It's quite possible that young guy lost his job because he appeared in the movie, because he said, thank you for you and your husband. I've been very heartened over the last few days to see finally people taking to the streets of Moscow and St. Petersburg to protest this war. It's heartbreaking that it took this long, but finally we are seeing some domestic cracks in this machine. And I can only hope that Navalny lives long enough to be able to run for the presidency of the Russian Federation. I believe his impact on history is unfulfilled and that one day he'll have the opportunity to run for the presidency in a democratic election and let the Russian people determine their own future. Before we go, can you give us an update on Navalny? Absolutely. Since this egregious and horrible war of aggression, Putin's war was started in Ukraine, the situation in Russia has become ever more bleak, and that is especially true for Navalny. He finds himself in a penal colony six and a half hours outside of Moscow, where he is locked up with the most violent offenders in the country. He has spent much of the last month in solitary confinement in a small cell because of having a button that was misaligned, really ridiculous charges to be in solitary confinement for. He is being deprived of his basic human rights, and his situation is deplorable. In addition, last week, his attorney-client privilege was revoked. Navalny can no longer privately confer with his legal counsel, which was his lifeline to the world. And subsequently, it's much more challenging for him to stay on top of current events and get words and thoughts out into the world, which he previously was able to do through his lawyers. Many people have speculated that this is a necessary step the regime would take before they do the unimaginable and try and liquidate Navalny once and for all. And so it's very upsetting and disheartening, but the man has extraordinary courage. His character is forged in steel and iron, and I am inspired by his optimism. I only hope that his vision of the beautiful Russia of the future will come true and he'll live long enough to see it for himself. If you are able to, we'd love to hear what's up next for you. Oh, God, you want me to have a, an anxiety attack? I've been in and out of depression and anxiety over the last couple of weeks, and I think it has to do with answering that question and the pressure of following up a film like Navalny. So although it doesn't answer your question, that might give you some insight into my state of mind at the moment, having completed this film. Daniel, I want to thank you so much for bringing us inside the world of Navalny. It's a place of darkness and light. I think that you've also given us a reason to have a moment to sit, which if you haven't seen the film, watch the film and you'll know what I'm talking about. So thank you, Daniel, for sitting down with us and best of luck with the film. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it, guys.